Welcome to our weekly recording of the service here at Bigger and Blackmount Churches. I'm Mike Fucella, I'm the minister here, and we are so glad that you could join us. It's my prayer that you will be blessed by the message this week. If you'd like to find out more about us, please do get in touch. Contact me at biggerkirk09 at gmail.com. That's biggerkirk09, all lowercase, at gmail.com. So here's the message this week. Let's turn to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, by the word of your mouth all things came into being. As that him says, all that has life and breath have life and breath because of you. Thank you, God, that in love you have created us as part of all that you have made. And thank you, Lord, that in Christ Jesus you offer us new birth. Where the old creation has been spoiled through our rebellion and disobedience, by your Spirit working in your people, you are daily recreating us to be part of that renewed creation. Thank you, Lord, for opportunities to, to realize where we have messed up and for your grace that shows us that you are a Father who is always ready to welcome us back with rejoicing and with open arms. In recognition of that grace, we now, before you, confess together our sins, individually and corporately, as a church family and as part of your human family. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, through our own deliberate fault, and in common with others. We are truly sorry and turn humbly from our sins. And we pray now the prayer that you taught all those who would follow you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Joy is going to come and bring us our gospel reading this morning. We read this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Amen. Do you know the word context? It means things that surround something that help us to understand that thing better. For instance, each of us has a context. You live in Bigger, which is part of Scotland, and you live in the 21st century. That's all part of your context. So that would help me to understand why you might occasionally wear a kilt or root for Scotland in the rugby or like to play Minecraft on your Xbox. If you were a kid in Thailand in the last century, you probably wouldn't do any of those things. That just wouldn't be your context. Now here's a little exercise to help us to understand the importance of context. I wonder if these words up on the screen make any sense to you. I'll read them. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. Now, in that sort of paragraph, all the sentences make sense. But what are these words talking about overall? Now, if I were to show you this next picture and then read those words again, they would make perfect sense. The context is all about kite flying, isn't it? Now, things said in the Bible and in this passage that we're looking at today particularly have a certain context. And sometimes if we don't understand the context, the things surrounding the words, then we can be confused or misunderstand the words themselves. So part of our job as people who love and read the Bible is to try to understand the context of what we're reading. One wise person once said that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. It was written as a book to help us, but it was written thousands of years ago to people living in a part of the world that is not like bigger in many, many ways. 
So in order to understand what Jesus is saying in a passage like Joy so kindly read for us just now, we need to understand the context of what is written there. We need to try to understand what those words meant to the people that were, they were first spoken to. For instance, when we read that Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, I don't, um, if you don't understand the context, you might be very, very confused by what Jesus says here. You might think that Jesus wants us to tear out our eyes, but that isn't what Jesus wants us to do at all. What Jesus is really saying is here is don't let what everybody else is saying and maybe what they have led you to believe lead you down the wrong path. That's very different than gouging out your eyes. And one of the most important bits of context for the whole of the Bible that we always need to bear in mind when we come to read God's word is that God loves us. So even when we come to demanding words like the ones we're looking at this morning, in the background we know that these are words that are good for us because they come from a good God who loves us. And therefore we need to learn and follow them. Let's listen to a song that speaks of God's love for us before we turn to reflect further on the very demanding words of Jesus that we are exploring this morning. My plan today, as of last week, was for us to explore the next two passages that in my Bible are headed adultery and divorce as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Adultery and divorce. Actually, initially, I didn't want to talk about these two issues at all. I thought maybe we should just skip or skim over them. But having given it thought and prayer, I think that we should take these topics head on. But in doing so, we're going to have to split them up. So this week, we'll look at verses 27 to 30 that Joy read for us, and next week we'll look at verses 31 and 32. Even though we're splitting them up, there is more here to talk about than we can cover in the allotted 20 minutes. So can I ask you to please cut me some slack, and if you have questions or further thoughts, please do get in touch with me for a chat or Consult the resources that I have provided in the weekly email and at the, in the description of the YouTube video. Now, the reason I wanted to avoid these passages, to be quite honest, is that they are awkward. I came across this cartoon of the Sermon on the Mount the other day, and I think it just sums up the difficulty with these two patches, passages anyway. Now, a warning to parents, this morning and next Sunday, we're going to talk about some things to do with sex and sexuality that may require you to have a follow-up conversation with any children who are listening. 
These subjects deal with, these passages deal with two subjects, sexual immorality and divorce, that are very, very painful for a lot of us and for a lot of people we know and love. Now that would be a good reason to therefore speak about these issues. But what Jesus has to say about these subjects seems really harsh. And these verses have been used to hammer people who are already hurting from the guilt of sexual desire gone wrong or very messy and painful divorces. Even so, taken in context, I think Jesus has some profound and life-giving things to say in these passages. We would miss out on those profound and life-giving things if we were to skim over or skip these passages altogether. So let's pray before we dive in to the first of these passages. Oh God, send your spirit upon us and light our path that we may travel the road that you have prepared for us. Having heard your scriptures read, now reveal to us their meaning. Enable our hearts and minds to more fully understand your goodness and your grace. Help us, Lord, to break free from ideas that no longer bring life. That we may embrace the life-giving work of your Spirit. Challenge us, Lord, to forsake paths that ask little of us. And help us resist the evils and temptations of this world. That we may truly follow the way of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so as we heard before in the children's talk, context is everything. Context is certainly everything in trying to get our heads around what Jesus is saying here in our passage this morning. Let's therefore remind ourselves of the context Remember who is speaking here. That is the most important bit of the context. Let's go on to the next slide. Okay. The person who is speaking here is Jesus, of course. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. This one who would go to the cross to die for us. Jesus, who is speaking these seemingly harsh words, is the one who values human beings so much that he is willing to die for them, that they might live in eternal blessing. The second bit of the context is the audience to whom he is speaking. As we've already come to see, Jesus was speaking primarily to his disciples. 
And he was speaking to his disciples for the purpose of describing the kingdom and shaping these disciples by his words to be people fit for that kingdom. Jesus in this passage is not here trying to shape government policy. He's not critiquing the way 21st century society sees marriage, though there is plenty of criticism for us to take away from what he says. But that is not Jesus' primary reason for the words that he speaks here. This that Jesus prescribes is an ethic for his kingdom. It is an ethic for those who voluntarily sign up for his kingdom. The words that Jesus speaks were never meant to be a law to hammer non-believers with. Now, Jesus here is concerned for his disciples And he is mostly concerned for his disciples' hearts. He's not first and foremost concerned with their actions, even though actions are important. No, Jesus believed that it is from the heart that actions arise. Get the heart right, according to Jesus, and the actions will follow suit. Change only actions or outward appearances, and all you get is hypocrisy and the potential to easily slip again into wrong behavior. Jesus, however, is all about changing his disciples from the inside out. So a third bit of the context is to ask when Jesus was speaking. This is vital too. As we saw in our first week of this series, Jesus addresses the disciples, but the crowds are there too. And both the crowds and the disciples are part of first century Jewish society. Not 21st century Bigaronian society, but first century Jewish society. In the passage, it's clear that he is addressing men primarily. But I'm sure that Jesus is aware that women are listening too. And what he has to say is relevant for them as well. There were many women amongst his disciples. But here in this passage, Jesus is primarily addressing problems created by men in a society that, like most societies throughout history, was in many ways an oppressive patriarchy, to borrow a phrase. The society to which Jesus was speaking was a society where women were often powerless and where women were made victims at the whim of men. Now, Jesus was not a woke feminist of the 21st century. To call him that would be anachronistic. What he was was the righteous son of God. And as such, he was concerned with justice, 
just as much as any feminist is. And Jesus keenly perceived where human power structures were oppressive and harmful and where those structures ran contrary to the vision of his kingdom. And one place where power structures were particularly oppressive was where the genders meet. And that's still the same today. Jesus and his audience are Jewish, and that too is a vital part of the context. As we saw before, Jesus does not come to do away with the law of Moses, but Jesus comes to fulfill the law. And so Jesus speaks to the specific Mosaic laws of sexual conduct here in this passage. And he speaks to them by way of fulfilling them. Now, contrary to popular opinion and later church history, neither Jesus nor the Jewish culture in which he lived was prudish about sex. Sex for Jesus and Jews in the first century was good. The Song of Solomon was read every year That Song of Solomon, I don't know if you've read it, it's an erotic poem in our Bible. It was read every year publicly in the temple at the Passover festival. I don't know if we've ever read it in church here, but we do. We do often read it at some bits of it in weddings, and this is the the passage that we might normally read at a wedding in that erotic poem, the, the, the lovers are talking about each, body, each other's bodies in, in detail. And uh, it can cause you to blush, actually. They were not prudish about sex. Here, the writer writes, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. The Jewish understanding was that sex was good and beautiful but that sex was also dangerous. Therefore, there must be safe parameters set for sex to keep it safe and good and beautiful. There in the passage in the Song of Solomon, it is described as a blazing fire. Now to pursue that metaphor, a fire in my barbecue can be a great thing. Fire is a blessing. Fire in that context can feed my family. But if that fire gets out of my barbecue and it spreads through my garden into my neighbor's garden, that fire can be deadly. Sex can be a great thing, but it can also destroy. According to Jewish law and tradition, 
in order to keep safe, uh, sex safe, good, and beautiful, it was to be enjoyed only within a covenant relationship of marriage, where promises are made and where promises are kept between one man and one woman. Now, that was the ideal. That is what Jesus, following Moses, believed. That was the ideal. But within the law of the Old Testament, there was an acknowledgement that this ideal was not always possible. And there were provisions for when things went wrong. And we'll talk about those provisions for when things go wrong more next week. Another final bit of the context underlying everything that we've talked about already, underlining, underlying everything, including sexual desire and sexual, sexuality, is that God comes with... The, go, is there not another slide here? Nope. It, another bit of the context that is vital is that Jesus comes with the grace of God. Jesus comes into all our situations as human beings with grace and with the possibility of forgiveness and with the power to heal. Jesus comes to heal broken individuals and broken relationships and a broken world. So important that we remember that as we think about difficult, demanding words that Jesus often speaks. So that's the context. So what within that context is Jesus saying in our passage specifically this morning? Well, he begins by citing the Mosaic statute, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then, like in the previous example concerning murder last Sunday, Jesus goes on to widen the scope of what is normally conceived of as adultery. And he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone, of course, means any man, single or married, looking lustfully at a woman. But I think we can also take it to mean any woman, too, looking lustfully at a man, or indeed any man looking lustfully at another man, or a woman looking lustfully at a woman. It seems that it is the lustful look that is the crux of the matter here for Jesus. What does the lustful look mean? On Tuesday night, when we wrestled with this passage in our Bible study, we came to the conclusion that what this lustful look means is a look that sees another person as an object with the purpose of satisfying your sexual desire, whether the person is a man or a woman, 
whether they are married or not, whether you are married or not, whether they want you to use them in that way or not. Now, this is not just a glance at someone. It is not admiring someone's beauty. That happens in spades in the Song of Solomon. It is looking with the result that a movie plays in your head of what it would be like to have sex with that person. The church father, John Chrysostom, said it was the look that kindled the furnace of desire within you. And Martin Luther, in his usual practical and illustrative way, said in his commentary on this passage, you can stop a bird flying over your head, but you can't prevent it from making a nest in your hair. Or, or, but you can prevent it from making a nest in your hair, or indeed you can prevent it from pecking off your nose. I think we know what this lustful look is all about. I don't think there is anyone who hasn't looked this way or hasn't at least had someone lustfully look at them. There's a clear link here to our passage last week. Jesus' primary concern here as it was there, as it is everywhere, arises from the fact that Jesus values human beings as those made in the image of God. He wants the best for them. He wants the best for the person who looks with lust. And he wants the best for the person who is a victim of that look. Jesus acknowledges along with the Mosaic law that although sex is beautiful and good, unbridled sexual desire expressed in the wrong way is dangerous. But how is it dangerous? How is this look dangerous? Well, just think about the harm and the literal hell that happens because of this lustful look. And I don't think I'm going overboard here. This look can and does at times lead to breakdown of relationships, leads to divorce, leads to families being torn apart, leads to children without a mother or a father. It is this look that is behind the multi-billion pound porn industry, an industry whose stars have one of the highest incidences of mental health and addiction problems, where suicide is rife, and where many are literal slaves. This lustful look can lead to an addiction to sex, where the one who is addicted, addicted has to fuel his or her habit by having more and more of the same, or even more novel forms of the same leading sometimes to practices that you wouldn't want me to mention here on a Sunday morning in church. The lustful look can be 
dangerous. It is dangerous. It all starts with that look that leads to a thought, that leads to action, that can escalate into more action, and suddenly one can find oneself adrift on a sea of a whole lot of hurt and disaster. Hurt and disaster not only for oneself, but for others around oneself too, and specifically for those that one loves. Okay, this look is dangerous, but what are we to do about it? Well, look at what Jesus goes on to say. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Come on, Jesus. How is gouging out my right eye and cutting off my right hand going to solve this problem? I can just use my left eye and my left hand instead. What are you on about here, Jesus? Surely if I am to get to the root of this problem, I need to divest myself of other organs too my brain and my heart being among the most obvious. Is Jesus talking about literally gouging out your eye and chopping off your hand? Well, this isn't the only time that Jesus speaks of cutting off one's hand. He talks about it in Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it away, he says again. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. In the Psalms, the eye, the hand, and the foot are representative. They are representative for how one perceives the world, the eye how one perceives the world, the hand, how one behaves in the world, and the foot, one's path and life of life in the world. To gouge out an eye, lop off a hand, or hack off a foot, I think means to change one's perspective, one's behavior, and to change the trajectory of one's life if indeed those things are leading you in the wrong direction. Jesus gives a dramatic prescription of amputation here because the blessed kingdom that he promises will be a place where human beings are not seen as only objects for sexual gratification. If the lustful look or indeed anything that is not consummate with God's kingdom is something that is part of your worldview, your eye, if that is a behavior in which you engage your hand, 
that has developed into a trajectory for your life, your foot, then as a follower of Jesus, you need to cut it off dramatically. Cut it off and throw it away. So what are you to do if you have a problem with lustful looking? Or indeed, if it has gone beyond that to behavior that you find shameful or feel that you are trapped in. First, I, I think you, we, should work on trying to not let those birds build nests in our hair. Certainly not to let them go so far as pecking off our noses. Practically, that might mean forging new habits of where you turn your eyes and what you look at. Staying away from certain websites or apps on your phone. Secondly, I think it's important to know that you are not alone. We all have sin, and we all fall short of the glory of God. We don't all have sin and fall short in the same way, but we all fall short just as surely as anyone else. So talk to a trusted Christian brother or sister. Talk to me. Confess to one another, James says, not so that others can beat you up for your faults, but so they can pray for you, so that they can hold you accountable for decisions you make about modifying your behavior, your perceptions, and your trajectory of life. Finally, if you struggle with this problem, go to Jesus. What does he say elsewhere here in Matthew? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my teaching is easy, and my burden is light when I'm in it with you. Now, of course, changing a worldview from the one that you are enmeshed in, changing habitual behavior, changing the trajectory of life are all easier said than done. And I don't think Jesus is ignorant of how hard that can be. And I don't think Jesus is ignorant of how long many of us have struggled with problems like lust and greed and anger. Jesus is committed to walking with us along that long road to sorting such problems out. He's committed to forgiving us when we fail. He's committed to helping us back up when we fall. 
And he's committed to giving us his power to overcome. Jesus loves us despite our sins, despite the things we struggle with. Jesus is not expecting immediate perfection from any of us. What Jesus is trying to get us to do here in his teaching is to recognize this lustful look and other sins with which we struggle as issues that keep us from being all that he wants us to be. Issues that keep us from being happy. And so we must work as best we can with his help to excise these things from our lives, to cut them off, to cut them out. May Jesus give us that power of his spirit so to do. Prayers we begin by dedicating our offerings of money, service, and sacrifice that we have given throughout this past week. Let's pray together. Lord, now we offer to you who we are and what we have done and what we have. In these things which we bring to you, Lord, there is much brokenness. None of it is perfect. Our hearts are not pure. Even the good things we do, we do from mixed and selfish motives. As the offerings in the temple of old were seasoned with your holy fire, we ask you to season us and our offerings now with the fire of your Holy Spirit. And having burned off the dross, we ask you to forge us and forge what we offer in terms of our lives into useful tools for your kingdom purposes. God of grace who wants only the best for your world, we ask you to look down on nations with mercy and compassion today. And we lift before you the peoples of the countries of Europe struck by flooding, the people of South Africa and of Afghanistan. Lord God, bring relief from these floods that are ravaging the lowlands of Europe. Give comfort to those who have lost loved ones, property, and livelihood. We pray for the rescue operations and those who are missing will be found and communities will be restored. We pray for the people of South Africa living in fear from escalating violence, for the many who are already in need, for whom this present crisis only serves to compound their suffering. Have mercy, Lord. 
and return peace and prosperity along with justice to that nation. We pray for Afghanistan. We pray for those displaced by the war, suffering in the heat, hungry and afraid. We pray for leaders and relief workers. We pray for our friend Lucy, who has worked for so long in that country and whose heart is broken by what is happening. Lord, spread your wings over this nation, this nation that has known suffering for far too long. Merciful Lord, hear our prayer. May the desert places of physical land and in the hearts of people bloom with new life and with hope. And closer to home, we pray for friends, family, and neighbors who are all along with us longing for a day when we can take off these masks, sit close together, and maybe even sing. Lord God, give us patience and perseverance. Give our leaders wisdom and hearts that are willing to do what is right, even when it is unpopular. In all that we pray, Lord, we ask you to use us, your people, who are called by your name, to be agents of your coming kingdom, Use us to be the answers in some way to the prayers that we pray. For we do not pray alone. We have a living Savior who forever intercedes for us and for our world. He takes our prayers and perfects them before he offers them before your throne of grace. And it is in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen.